Grab your Bibles, if you would. Open them up to the book of John, chapter 10. We're going to read a few verses out of John, chapter 10, and then out of 12 and 14 a little later, but I want you to be ready for it. Hey, if you're a guest, um, I want you to know, as I've already mentioned, that we're really glad that you're here. One of the ways that, that we communicate uh, to, to one another, and you'll be able to communicate to me whether or not you are a guest, is the card that was in your chair. And we put a pin on every other chair, believing that uh, some of you would bring a pen and we would have less to pick up at the end. Um, but uh, if you would, go ahead and fill that out if you're a guest and just let us know that you're here. All it does is gives us an opportunity to communicate to you and kind of let you know a little bit about who we are. We're not going to bug you um, and all that kind of stuff. If you're a, um, a regular part, you've been here before, certainly fill it out. If you have a need of some sort that you think we can help you with, we want to, want to help you. One of our values is radical generosity. And so we believe... Um, that, that we have a wonderful group of people who want to be generous towards one another. And so if you have needs, uh, be it financial or just personal or prayer needs or whatever, just make us aware of those, and we will make sure that we do everything that we can to minister to you in that way. That's a, that's a really a cool thing that we want to do. So um, I, I'm, I'm in a series. This is, I, I think, the uh, fourth week. Um, no, it's the third week in a series called Think. And it's an interesting sort of way in which it, I came about to, to come to this series because it's very different than any kind of series I've ever done, to be quite honest, because most of it is me talking to you uh, using uh, reasonable arguments that, that do not use what the Bible says. And one reason I, I do it is because we can't use the Bible to argue for the reliability of the Bible or the existence of God or the, the authority of Jesus. Um, we have to start, I think, in a different place um, and, and use the brains that God has given us. And we can. There have been some arguments that have passed down through history that argue, um, reasonable arguments, that tell us that the Bible as a historical document is reliable. We talked about that two weeks ago. We believe that it's uniquely given to us by God. We see unity in the Bible. Um, we see that there are prophecies that were written hundreds of years before they could have come true. And they did come true. And so this is why we study and read and value the Bible, not just because we were told to as children, right? We have to kind of get to a place where we believe in the Bible because it, we believe, it's reasonable to believe. Um, and then last week we talked about uh, this question, which is maybe the most commonly asked question in the hearts of every person in the world, does God really exist? And we talked a little bit about how during this period called the Enlightenment, uh, the uh, 18th century, it, it sort of captured what was happening uh, in people's thinking where they begin to rely on reason and then begin to set re separate reason out from faith. And so what began to happen is people said, well, we don't need spirituality anymore because we have our minds and we can figure things out. And so what began to begin uh, happening in, in society is spirituality began to be suffocated or separated from reason and began to exist in the immaterial world. And, and what we see is that in the Bible, uh, what we believe as Christians is that our, our faith or a substantive faith begins with thinking. You cannot have faith without thinking. Now, just thinking is not enough to cause a stir, a turning in your own heart, to lead, lead you to repentance and faith in Jesus as Lord. 
just thinking is not enough. So your mind is not enough. There's this mysterious way in which God works to cause you to, to, to turn towards him. But we must use our minds to engage. Okay, so this is kind of where we've been. And, and so the first week was, is the Bible uniquely God's word? And then the second week is, does God even exist? And we talked about that last week, teleological argument, cosmological argument, and moral argument. And there are other arguments, arguments from beauty and action and all these kinds of things. And today the question that's pressing is, is it reasonable to believe that Jesus is who Christians believe he was and is? This is a really relevant question because next Sunday is Easter. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, next Sunday I will pose the question, did the resurrection really happen? Is it reasonable to believe that the resurrection happened? And so you can invite people and just tell them, my, uh, the guy talking is going to basically suggest that it is reasonable, not just a faith issue or not just some heart belief issue that Jesus was raised from the dead, but it's reasonable to believe based on the facts that we have in history that Jesus did raise from the dead. Um, but today we must examine this question, is it reasonable to believe that Jesus is who Christians believe he was and is? And I would say to you it is. Now, for those of you that are here that are a little skeptical about all of this, uh, I want to invite you to think with me. And some of this to you will be like, oh, I don't really get that. So feel free to email me or just write your question on your card there. Others of you are, have a deep belief in that Jesus is God and that he is who he said he was and he is who he says he is. You believe that deeply within you. And what you must do is, is um, begin thinking about uh, getting some of these ideas in your own mind so that you're ready to share with people that you're in faith conversations with. Um, I've often wondered why people who claim Christianity uh, do have so few faith conversations with people that are not Christians. And it's interesting, I've stumbled upon this statistic where it says that most professed Christians uh, in terms of what they know theologically, it's no more than what a 13-year-old that's grown up in the church knows. And what we realize is that there are many people who profess Christ that have quit thinking or never began to think in the first place. And what I want to suggest to you is that we must be thinkers. We must examine these questions about is it reasonable to believe that Jesus is who he says he was? Because the world is asking this very question. Uh, another statistic that I stumbled upon is that 12% of Americans claim to be either atheist, agnostic, or another religion besides Christianity. But they used to be Christian. They would say, I used to believe that Jesus is God, but now I don't. And there's several, one out of eight people. That's pretty incredible, right? Um, and that's why some believe that America is a post, it's becoming post-Christian. If you go to other parts of the world, they believe that America is a Christian nation, but most sort of um, uh, people that study these kinds of things that are a lot smarter than I am, they would say that America is actually becoming a post-Christian nation where the majority of people uh, are not actually Christian, nor do they profess to be. And many of, one out of eight people, used to profess Christianity but no longer do. And there's a couple of reasons for that, I think. One is... Um, Maybe they were hurt by the church. Some of you are here and you were hurt by the church as a child and you're just kind of getting back in. Or maybe as a young adult, you, uh, you were hurt by the church for some reason. Uh, other people left 
Christianity uh, a religious as a religion because they got interested in something else. Maybe they got caught up in something else, some immoral behavior, and it just didn't make sense to, to keep doing that immoral behavior and attending church, and they didn't want to deal with the conviction that was there. But many people are no longer in the Christian church of this 12% of Americans that, that exist because they had questions about their faith and there was no place for them to ask them. There was no place to question, does God really exist? Does the Bible really reveal to us who God is and what He wants? Is Jesus really who He says He was? And I want you to know the kind of church that we're going to have. This will be a safe place to ask hard questions. I'm not threatened by your questions. I may not know all the answers. I, in fact, I know that I don't know all the answers. But I want you to work out your faith with fear and trembling. I want you to ask your questions because I believe that it will be driven deeply within you so that when you have faith conversations with people, there will be something unique about the way in which you talk about your faith. So don't be threatened by other people's questions about your belief. In fact, just be ready to talk to them about it, why it's reasonable to believe that Jesus is who he says he was which I think it is. And so, um, just, just uh, let's, let's think about this. Is Jesus who he said he was and is? Yes. Well, well, first of all, we have to sort of figure out, outside of the canon of Scripture, is did Jesus really exist? I mean, we can look in the Bible. We believe it's a historical document that's reliable to every standard that exists for the reliability of a historical document that exists. Christian or non-Christian or whatever, it's a historical document that is reliable. But outside of the Bible, is there evidence that Jesus, this man from Nazareth, even existed? If there is not any evidence, or we, if we can prove that he did not exist, then we're wasting our time, right? It certainly wasn't raised from the dead. Is there evidence? Well, let me just give you a few places where there is evidence. Um, a man by the name of Tacitus, I don't know exactly if that's how you spell it, T-A-C, or pronounce it T-A-C-I-T-U-S, uh, was a was a, uh, a historian, a Roman historian that lived, uh, I believe, in the second century, early part of the second century, uh, and and we we have this this account of what happened in Rome in 64 A.D. where he talks about this man by the name of Jesus. Listen to this. Now, keep in mind these three people I'm about to reference are not Christians. They have no sort of internal need to prove to people that the Bible is reliable or that Jesus is who he says he was. There uh, is evidence, though, that Jesus the man did exist. Okay, So this is a first point in conversation that you might have with people that doubt your faith. Or if you're a skeptical, here, here you go. He did exist. Here's what this Roman historian Tacitus said uh, related to Jesus. Nero fastened the guilt and the guilt of a fire that began in Rome in 64 A.D., uh, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations. So he's talking here about this class, this group of Christians. He's saying that they were hated for their abominations. They're called Christians by the populace, or by the majority of people. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. So what this historian is reporting is that Nero blamed a fire on this group of people whose leader was Christus or Christ, and that this leader was crucified during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Does that sound familiar? 
It does because it's in the Bible. It's exactly what is written about Jesus in the Bible. There's this man who existed. Now, what's interesting about uh, this historian is he says that there was a most mischievous superstition that broke out in Judea and also existed in Rome. And some historians read what he wrote about this superstition and believe that he was talking about this, uh, the possibility that Jesus was raised from the dead. This superstition was that this group of people believed that this man Christus, who suffered the ultimate penalty or crucifixion, was raised from the dead. And not only did that rumor exist in Judea, but it also existed in Rome. Pretty incredible, actually. And we should reflect here for a moment. Uh, Christ was, was killed, according to this historian, by the powers, by the government that existed in that day as a criminal. But what we also know is that there was explosive growth in the group of people that followed this Christus after his murder or after his death. So is it reasonable to believe that so many people would risk their own lives to confess Christ as Lord if he was merely a criminal? Is it possible that this mischievous superstition was that he was raised from the dead and that it was actually true, which sparked this popularity among people. He was unique. Did you know that Jesus was not the only one living in the first century that claimed to be Messiah? He wasn't. He wasn't the only one who, uh, records show, had some uniqueness about him. But what we know about his death is that the events surrounding his death and this superstition of his resurrection is that enough people believed it that the Christian following exploded. Absolutely exploded. Not just in Judea, but also in Rome, all over Asia Minor. Okay, so just, just um, another example. A guy by the name of Pliny the Younger, which is an interesting example. Uh, interesting name. I'm guessing he had an older brother or sister or something. Um, uh, he was a Roman governor, and the way that things worked in, in this particular period uh, was he, the emperor sort of had governors of all these areas, and so these governors would report back to the emperor what was going on, and so this uh, Pliny the Younger, this, this uh, governor, um, Asia Minor, Bithynia, that kind of area, writes a letter to Trahan, who's the emperor at the time, and he's asking for advice. And he needs advice because there's a multitude of people from every race, age, and social class who are accused of Christianity. So at this period, they were beginning to be seen as um, a group of people that were infidels because they did not worship the emperor of Rome, but instead they worshiped Christus. So they were accused of Christianity. So Trahan writes this letter to the governor, and he, he says this about them. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. And when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves with a solemn oath. What becomes clear here is that Pliny understood that this group called Christians who were accused of worshiping something other than the emperor were actually worshiping a historical man named Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And this is just uh, 112 A.D., something like that. 
But by far the most persuasive evidence that this man Jesus existed is this historian named Josephus. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the name Josephus. Okay, just a little group participation. This is kind of like a history lesson, so if you're like me, history lessons are a little boring. And so, anyway, um, so this, this historian Josephus, uh, there's a couple of accounts of what he, he said, and this first one has been disputed, and, and, and his, some historians have said, no, Christians later edited what he said. And so I'll read you the first one, and then we'll read the more kind of conservative version of what he actually said. But here's what Josephus reported about this na- man named Jesus. About this time... There lived a man named Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And on the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. Now, mind you, this is Josephus. He's a Jewish historian, has no particular interest in proving that Jesus is actually the Messiah. So, as I said, some people have debated this and said, no, no, some of what is in that paragraph was later edited by Christians, and there's certainly a rebuttal to that debate. But, but what we have is another version of something that he said. And so this is a conservative um, explanation by Josephus of who Jesus was. Here it is. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after the crucifixion, and they were in the resurrection, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So here we have three evidences from history, not from the Bible, that this man Jesus actually existed, that he was respected, that he had followers, that there were rumors around his existence that said that he was raised from the dead after being crucified. That cannot be denied by any reasonable thinking person, Christian or non-Christian. There is enough historical evidence to prove that this man by the name of Jesus existed. But the question that is pressing is, was he Lord? Was Jesus Lord? Now, we have to uh, rely on the historical documents that are provided to us that actually talk about this, which for us are the Bible. Now, we believe certainly that the Bible is more than just a historical document, much more uh, supernatural and divinely inspired than, say, your history book in, in college. Um, but, and, and if you doubt whether or not the Bible is actually unique and worth relying on, then you'll have to listen to the podcast from a couple of weeks ago. But I do want to use the Bible as a historical document, also believing that it's God's revealed Word, to answer the question, was Jesus Lord? You know, the biblical authors claimed him to be. People that wrote about him in the Bible claimed him to be. In Colossians, Paul goes to great lengths to... Paul, a Roman uh, Jew, converted to Christianity in supernatural means. Uh, He goes to great lengths to argue that all of God's divine attributes are present in Christ, giving indication that he is God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, just listen carefully to these. 
the image of the in, he is Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and that God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Verse, chapter one, verse fifteen, and also verse nineteen. He, he summarizes the same idea in chapter two, verse nine. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Later on, the writer of Hebrews concurs. In his opening paragraph, he says these words, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Paul says of Jesus, Christ, who is God over all. Titus, he also writes that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who? Jesus Christ. Christ. Peter portrays him in chapter uh, 1, verse 1 of Second Peter, the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. He's portrayed as a servant um, here. Now, if time allowed, I could go into the Bible and I could uh, certainly show you places in the Bible that ascribe to this man Jesus, divine attributes, his involvement in creation, or his the miracles that he did, like raising people from the dead or healing people. We, if we had time, we could do that. And if you're interested in that, then you would go into like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and read about the story, the biography of who, who Jesus was and what he, what he did. But what I want us to consider in just in these few final moments is that did Jesus claim to be God? Did Jesus claim to be God? We, we see that Jesus existed, that the people around him believed to be God, and, and, and multitudes believed him to be unique. I mean, they professed him as Lord at the risk of death. This is what history will tell us. But did Jesus claim to be God? Look at John chapter 10. Are you there? John chapter 10, verse 30. Now, um, I must confess, what I'm about to do is quickly go through what is a very long conversation about um, some of these passages. And so, um, as your questions come up, please uh, write them down and send them in to me, or we can get coffee and talk more about this. But I simply want to, to, to put before you that Jesus claimed to be God. He did. John chapter 10, verse 30. I, here's what he says, uh, kind of in the middle of the section where he's talking. I and the Father are one. Now, what is he saying here? We see immediately that what he's saying is he's claiming to be God. Because in verse 31 it says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why do they want to stone him? Well, because he claimed to be God, and they consider that to be blasphemy. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. But this is understandable. The Jews believe God to be one. And here is this rabbi claiming to be God. And Jesus is saying to them, I can tell you many of the works that I've done that are clearly the works of a God. Someone who's supernatural in, in giftedness. But he takes it one step further to them. He says, I am God. Let's flip over to John chapter 12, verse 44. 
Jesus cried out and said, John chapter 12, verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. In other words, God the Father. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Look over in John chapter 14, verse 9. There are other places in the scriptures that, where Jesus does this, but this is just kind of easy, two, two chapters separated here. John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? One of those followers. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, get it through your thick head. I'm more than a mere rabbi. I am God incarnate. When I was born and the songs called me, gave me the name Emmanuel, God with us, it meant that God is with you. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He's frustrated with him here. Can't you get it? Do you not know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. In other words, believe in your heart or look what I can do. Did Jesus claim to be God? Yes. Yes, he did. So the people believed he were God. There, there were people that uh, were not even believers that, that uh, argued or that provide evidence that he actually existed and that people followed him. The people that write in the Bible viewed him as God. He claimed to be God. And so the question is, did, was Jesus God? We'd say yes. He was either God or a liar or a lunatic. And you might be familiar with this, what's called the Lewis Trilemma. C.S. Lewis, uh, prior to coming to Christ, very influential in the way we think about Christianity today. Prior to coming to Christ, um, it's totally leaving me when he lived. What are the years that C.S. Lewis lived? 18th century? Not early 19th century? Okay. So C.S. Lewis uh, was an atheist and uh, came to faith in Christ and became one of the most influential, most widely quoted uh, Christ followers ever. And he developed this argument called the trilemma. And his issue was with people that, that professed to see Jesus as a moral teacher, a good, moral, virtuous teacher, a virtuous man, but at the same time refused to believe that he was God. And so what he does in, uh, for the very first time in this, in this, uh, among these people that are, are claiming this, that Jesus was a moral teacher, but he's not God. I hear it all the time from people. Yeah, we believe Jesus was a good prophet like Gandhi, like um, you know, Joseph Smith, like uh, you know, all, all these people that have got good things to say, Muhammad. But at the end of the day, he's not God. He's no more unique than these other people who had good moral teachings and led people morally. So C.S. Lewis developed this trilemma, which I'm relying on him totally here in the way that I explain it to you. And, and, and the thing is, did, did Jesus claim to be God? Yes. So he either was, or he was a liar or a lunatic. Was he a liar? Just in short. If he was a liar, then he, he died for this lie. He went to his own death for the lie. It seems like quite a, a cost for a hoax of this type. And he did not need to die 
to get attention from people. He had quite a following, right? I mean, masses of people would gather around him. It was exhausting. They'd push him in, into the boat. There were so many people crowding around him. He had to teach from a boat. Was he a liar? It's unlikely that he would lie, believing that he was God. He believed he was God. So if he believed he was God, but he was not actually God, then maybe he was a lunatic. Maybe he was a crazy person. C.S. Lewis says it in this way. If he is not a liar, but instead he's a lunatic, then he is a lunatic of the kind his mind is like a poached egg, is what he says. It's mush. He's really a crazy person. But we see from history that uh, there's a whole bunch of people that followed the teachings of Jesus, did not believe, they did not believe that he was a crazy person. Now, just because there's a person where lots of people follow him isn't always enough evidence that somebody's not a crazy person. But at least it, it's reasonable to think, with all the things we know about Jesus, uh, his teachings about love and forgiveness and respect and, and, and interpersonal relationships and loving your enemy as well, of, as, well as those who you, know, you, you share faith with. Um, many of his teachings... Are, are accepted today as sound belief in a healthy mental state. So was he a lunatic? Could he have been a lunatic and, and offer the world so many of these other good moral teachings? It's unlikely. Could a lunatic be on the cross and, uh, and provide in, in, in what we see as a very coherent way for words of forgiveness to the people that are accusing him and putting him to death? So if he was not a liar, not a lunatic, then is it possible that he is who he says he was? I say yes. It's reasonable to believe. I don't think this is enough to cause you to go, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to lay my life down for Jesus. But I think it's enough, especially if you're skeptical, to consider that it is possible, likely, that he is who he said he was. This man who had a group of people that believed he was a God, who claimed to be God, who for all reasonable uh, purposes seemed sound in his mind to be who he said he was. C.S. Lewis, I should quote him directly, he says, Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. We believe Jesus is God. We believe that the written word reveals the living word who is Jesus. This is why we worship him. This is why we believe that just uh, 30 or so years after his birth, he began ministry, public ministry, and in three years proclaimed a message that God's kingdom uh, was come to earth and that there's a way to be at peace with the king in the kingdom. And that's through this mysterious exchange which will happen at the cross where Jesus died on the cross, suffered a penalty that he did not deserve 
And in some mysterious way, our sin, even 2,000 years later, is imputed or put on him. And then what we get is what he earned or what he had, and that is righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he does not see our sin, which is deserving of his wrath. But instead, what he sees is righteousness. It's through Jesus Christ we believe that there's forgiveness for sin. And we're made alive. We're made alive. It's in this message um, that we find the gospel, what's called the good news of the Bible. It's the very thing that stirs us to, to start a work like this because we love God and we believe it deeply. And so we want to serve people um, and create new relationships and, and connect with people so that we can, we can share the gospel with them and also live the gospel with them. Is Jesus who he says he was and is? Yes.